Just Meat by Jack London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. He strolled through the corner and glanced up and down the intersecting street, but saw nothing save the oases of light shed by the street lamps at the successive crossings. Then he strolled back the way he had come. He was a shadow of a man sliding noiselessly and without undue movement through the semi-darkness. Also he was very alert, like a wild animal in the jungle, keenly perceptive and receptive. The movement of another in the darkness about him would need to have been more shadowy than he to have escaped him. In addition to the running advertisement of the state of affairs carried to him by his senses, he had a subtler perception, a feel of the atmosphere around him. He knew that the house in front of which he paused for a moment contained children. Yet by no willed effort of perception did he have this knowledge. For that matter, he was not even aware that he knew, so occult was the impression. Yet did a moment arise in which action, in relation to that house, were imperative, he would have acted on the assumption that it contained children. He was not aware of all that he knew about the neighborhood. In the same way, he knew not how, he knew that no danger threatened in the footfalls that came up the cross street. Before he saw the walker he knew him for a belated pedestrian hurrying home. The walker came into view at the crossing and disappeared on up the street. The man that watched noted a light that flared up in the window of a house on the corner, and as it died down he knew it for an expiring match. This was conscious identification of familiar phenomena, and through his mind flitted the thought, wanted to know what time. In another house one room was lighted. The light burned dimly and steadily, and he had the feel that it was a sick room. He was especially interested in a house across the street in the middle of the block. To this house he paid most attention. No matter what way he looked, nor what way he walked, his looks and his steps always returned to it. Except for an open window above the porch there was nothing unusual about the house. Nothing came in or out. Nothing happened. There were no lighted windows, nor had lights appeared and disappeared in any of the windows. Yet it was the central point of his consideration. He rallied to it each time after a divination of the state of the neighborhood. Despite his feel of things, he was not confident. He was supremely conscious of the precariousness of his situation. Though unperturbed by the footfalls of the chance pedestrian, he was as keyed up and sensitive and ready to be startled as any timorous deer. He was aware of the possibility of other intelligences prowling about in the darkness, intelligences similar to his own in movement, perception, and divination. Far down the street he caught a glimpse of something that moved, and he knew it was no late homegoer but menace and danger. He whistled twice to the house across the street, then faded away shadow-like to the corner and around the corner. Here he paused and looked about him carefully. Reassured, he peered back around the corner and studied the object that moved and that was coming nearer. He divined aright. It was a policeman. 
the man went down the cross street to the next corner from the shelter of which he watched the corner he had just left he saw the policeman pass by going straight on up the street he paralleled the policeman's course and from the next corner again watched him go by then he returned the way he had come he whistled once to the house across the street and after a time whistled once again there was reassurance in the whistle just as there had been warning in the previous double whistle he saw a dark bulk outline itself on the roof of the porch and slowly descend a pillar then it came down the steps passed through the small iron gate and went down the sidewalk taking on the form of a man he that watched kept on his own side of the street and moved on abreast to the corner where he crossed over and joined the other he was quite small alongside the man he accosted how'd you make out matt he asked the other grunted indistinctly and walked on in silence a few steps i reckon i landed the goods he said jim chuckled in the darkness and waited for further information the blocks passed by under their feet and he grew impatient well how about them goods he asked what kind of haul did you make anyway i was too busy to figure it out but it's fat i can tell you that much jim it's fat i don't dast to think how fat it is wait till we get to the room jim looked at him keenly under the street lamp of the next crossing and saw that his face was a trifle grim and that he carried his left arm peculiarly what's the matter with your arm he demanded the little cuss bit me i hope i don't get hydrophoby folks gets hydrophoby from man-bite sometimes don't they give you a fight eh jim asked encouragingly the other grunted you're certainly hard to get information from jim burst out irritably tell us about it you ain't going to lose money just telling a guy i guess i choked him some came the answer then by way of explanation he woke up on me you did it neat i never heard a sound jim the other said with seriousness it's a hanging matter i fixed him i had to he woke up on me you and me's got to do some layin' low for a spell jim gave a low whistle of comprehension did you hear me whistle he asked suddenly sure i was all done i was just comin out it was a bull but he wasn't on a little bit went right by and kept a paddin the hoof out of sight then i came back and gave you the whistle what made you take so long after that i was waitin to make sure matt explained i was mighty glad when i heard you whistle again it's hard work waitin i just sat there and thought and thought oh all kinds of things it's remarkable what a fellow'll think about and then there was a darn cat that kept moving around the house and bothering me with its noises and it's fat jim exclaimed irrelevantly and with joy i'm telling you jim it's fat i'm plumb anxious for another look at em unconsciously the two men quickened their pace yet they did not relax from their caution twice they changed their course in order to avoid policemen and they made very sure that they were not observed when they dived into the dark hallway of a cheap rooming-house downtown not until they had gained their own room on the top floor did they scratch a match while jim lighted a lamp matt locked the door and threw the bolts into place as he turned he noticed that his partner was waiting expectantly matt smiled to himself at the other's eagerness them searchlights is all right he said drawing forth a small pocket electric lamp and examining it but we got to get a new battery it's runnin pretty weak i thought once or twice it'd leave me in the dark 
Funny arrangements in that house. I near got lost. His room was on the left, and that fooled me some. I told you it was on the left, Jim interrupted. You told me it was on the right, Matt went on. I guess I know what you told me, and there's the map you drew. Fumbling in his vest pocket, he drew out a folded slip of paper. As he unfolded it, Jim bent over and looked. I did make a mistake, he confessed. You sure did. It got me guessing some for a while. But it don't matter now, Jim cried. Let's see what you got. It does matter, Matt retorted. It matters a lot to me. I've got to run all the risk. I put my head in the trap while you stay on the street. You got to get on to yourself and be more careful. All right, I'll show you. He dipped loosely into his trousers pocket and brought out a handful of small diamonds. He spilled them out in a blazing stream on the greasy table. Jim let out a great oath. That's nothing, Matt said with triumphant complacence. I ain't begun yet. From one pocket after another he continued bringing forth the spoil. There were many diamonds wrapped in chamois skin that were larger than those in the first handful. From one pocket he brought out a handful of very small cut gems. Sundust, he remarked, as he spilled them on the table in a space by themselves. Jim examined them. Just the same, they retail for a couple of dollars each, he said. Is that all? Ain't it enough? the other demanded in an aggrieved tone. Sure it is, Jim answered with unqualified approval. Better than I expected. I wouldn't take a cent less than ten thousand for the bunch. Ten thousand? Matt sneered. They're worth twice that, and I don't know anything about jewelry, either. Look at that big boy. He picked it out from the sparkling heap and held it near to the lamp, with the air of an expert, weighing and judging. Worth a thousand all by its lonely, was Jim's quicker judgment. A thousand your grandmother, was Matt's scornful rejoinder. You couldn't buy it for three. "'Wake me up! I'm dreaming!' The sparkle of the gems was in Jim's eyes, and he began sorting out the larger diamonds and examining them. "'We're rich men, Matt. We'll be regular swells!' "'It'll take years to get rid of them,' was Matt's more practical thought. "'But think how we'll live. Nothing to do but spend the money and go on getting rid of them. Matt's eyes were beginning to sparkle, though somberly, as his phlegmatic nature woke up. I told you I didn't dast think how fat it was, he murmured in a low voice. What a killin', what a killin', was the other's more ecstatic utterance. I almost forgot, Matt said, thrusting his hand into his inside coat pocket. A string of large pearls emerged from wrappings of tissue paper and chamois skin. Jim scarcely glanced at them. They're worth money, he said, and returned to the diamonds. A silence fell on the two men. Jim played with the gems, running them through his fingers, sorting them into piles, and spreading them out flat and wide. He was a slender, weazened man, nervous, irritable, high-strung, and anemic, a typical child of the gutter with unbeautiful twisted features, small eyes with face and mouth perpetually and feverishly hungry, brutish in a cat-like way, stamped to the core with degeneracy. Matt did not finger the diamonds. He sat with chin on hands and elbows on table, blinking heavily at the blazing array. He was in every way a contrast to the other. No city had bred him. He was heavy-muscled and hairy, gorilla-like in strength and aspect. For him there was no unseen world. His eyes were full and wide apart, and there seemed in them a certain bold brotherliness. They inspired confidence. But a closer inspection would have shown that his eyes were just a trifle too full, 
just a shade too wide apart he exceeded spilled over the limits of normality and his features told lies about the man beneath the bunch is worth fifty thousand jim remarked suddenly a hundred thousand matt said the silence returned and endured a long time to be broken again by jim what in blazes was he doing with them all at the house that's what i want to know i'd a thought he'd a kept him in the safe down at the store matt had just been considering the vision of the throttled man as he had last looked upon him in the dim light of the electric lantern but he did not start at the mention of him there's no tellin he answered he might have been getting ready to chuck his partner he might have pulled out in the morning for parts unknown if we hadn't happened along i guess there's just as many thieves among honest men as there is among thieves you read about such things in the papers jim partners is always knifing each other a queer nervous look came into the other's eyes matt did not betray that he noted it though he said what was you thinking about jim jim was a trifle awkward for the moment nothing he answered only i was thinking just how funny it was all them jewels at his house what made you ask nothing i was just wondering that's all the silence settled down broken by an occasional low and nervous giggle on the part of jim he was overcome by the spread of gems it was not that he felt their beauty he was unaware that they were beautiful in themselves but in them his swift imagination visioned the joys of life they would buy and all the desires and appetites of his diseased mind and sickly flesh were tickled by the promise they extended he builded wondrous orgy-haunted castles out of their brilliant fires and was appalled at what he builded then it was that he giggled it was all too impossible to be real and yet there they blazed on the table before him fanning the flame of the lust of him and he giggled again i guess we might as well count em matt said suddenly tearing himself away from his own visions you watch me and see that it's square because you and me has got to be on the square jim understand jim did not like this and betrayed it in his eyes while matt did not like what he saw in his partner's eyes understand matt repeated almost menacingly ain't we always been square the other replied on the defensive what of the treachery already whispering in him it don't cost nothing being square in hard times matt retorted it's being square in prosperity that counts when we ain't got nothing we can't help being square we're prosperous now and we've got to be business men honest business men understand that's the talk for me jim approved but deep down in the meagre soul of him and in spite of him wanton and lawless thoughts were stirring like chained beasts matt stepped to the food shelf behind the two-burner kerosene cooking stove he emptied the tea from a paper bag and from a second bag emptied some red peppers returning to the table with the bags he put into them the two sizes of small diamonds then he counted the large gems and wrapped them in their tissue paper and chamois skin hundred and forty-seven good-sized ones was his inventory twenty real big ones two big boys and one whopper and a couple of fistfuls of teeny ones and dust he looked at jim correct was the response he wrote the count out on a slip of memorandum paper and made a copy of it giving one slip to his partner and retaining the other just for reference he said again he had recourse to the food shelf where he emptied the sugar from a large paper bag into this he thrust the diamonds large and small wrapped it up in a bandana handkerchief and stowed it away under his pillow 
Then he sat down on the edge of the bed and took off his shoes. "'And you think they're worth a hundred thousand? Jim asked, pausing and looking up from the unlacing of his shoe. "'Sure,' was the answer. "'I seen a dancer down in Arizona once with some big sparklers on her. They wasn't real. She said if they was, she wouldn't be dancing. Said they'd be worth all of fifty thousand, and she didn't have a dozen of them all told.' "'Who'd work for a livin'? Jim triumphantly demanded. "'Pick and shovel work,' he sneered. "'Work like a dog all my life and save all my wages, and I wouldn't have half as much as we got to-night.' "'Dishwashing's about your measure, and you couldn't get more'n twenty a month and board. Your figures is way off, but your point is well taken. Let them that likes it work. I rode range for thirty a month when I was young and foolish. Well, I'm older, and I ain't ridin' range.' He got into bed on one side. Jim put out the light and followed him in on the other side. "'How's your arm feel?' Jim queried amiably. Such concern was unusual, and Matt noted it and replied, "'I guess there's no danger of hydrophobia. What made you ask?' Jim felt in himself a guilty stir, and under his breath he cursed the other's way of asking disagreeable questions, but aloud he answered, "'Nothing. Only you seem scared of it at first. What are you going to do with your share, Matt?' buy a cattle ranch in arizona and set down and pay other men to ride range for me there's some several i'd like to see asking a job from me blast them and now you shut your face jim it'll be some time before i buy that ranch just now i'm going to sleep but jim lay long awake nervous and twitching rolling about restlessly and rolling himself wide awake every time he dozed the diamonds still blazed under his eyelids and the fire of them hurt Matt, in spite of his heavy nature, slept lightly, like a wild animal, alert in its sleep, and Jim noticed, every time he moved, that his partner's body moved sufficiently to show that it had received the impression, and that it was trembling on the verge of awakening. For that matter, Jim did not know whether or not frequently the other was awake. Once quietly betokening complete consciousness, Matt said to him, "'I'll go to sleep, Jim. Don't worry about them jewels. They'll keep.' and Jim had thought that at that particular moment Matt had been surely asleep. In the late morning Matt was awake with Jim's first movement, and thereafter he awoke and dozed with him until midday when they got up together and began dressing. "'I'm going out to get a paper and some bread,' Matt said. "'You boil the coffee.' As Jim listened unconsciously, his gaze left Matt's face and roved to the pillow, beneath which was the bundle wrapped in the bandana handkerchief. On the instant, Matt's face became like a wild beast's. "'Look here, Jim,' he snarled. "'You got to play square. If you do me dirt, I'll fix you, understand? I'd eat you, Jim. You know that? I'd bite right into your throat and eat you like that much beefsteak.' His sunburned skin was black with the surge of blood in it, and his tobacco-stained teeth were exposed by the snarling lips. Jim shivered and involuntarily cowered. There was death in the man he looked at. Only the night before that black-faced man had killed another with his hands, and it had not hurt his sleep. And in his own heart Jim was aware of a sneaking guilt, of a train of thought that merited all that was threatened. Matt passed out, leaving him still shivering. Then a hatred twisted his own face, and he softly hurled savage threats at the door. He remembered the jewels, and hastened to the bed, feeling under the pillow for the bandana bundle. He crushed it with his fingers to make sure that it still contained the diamonds. Assured that Matt had not carried them away, he looked toward the kerosene stove with a guilty start. 
Then he hurriedly lighted it, filled the coffee-pot at the sink, and put it over the flame. The coffee was boiling when Matt returned, and while the latter cut the bread and put a slice of butter on the table, Jim poured out the coffee. It was not until he sat down and had taken a few sips of the coffee that Matt pulled out the morning paper from his pocket. "'We was way off,' he said. "'I told you I didn't dast figure out how fat it was. Look at that!' He pointed to the headlines on the first page. "'Swift nemesis on Bujanov's track,' they read. "'Murdered in his sleep after robbing his partner.' "'There you have it,' Matt cried. "'He robbed his partner, robbed him like a dirty thief.' "'Half a million of jewels missin,' Jim read aloud. He put the paper down and stared at Matt. "'That's what I told you,' the latter said. "'What in thunder do we know about jewels? Half a million! And the best I could figure it was a hundred thousand. Go on and read the rest of it.' They read on silently, their heads side by side, the untouched coffee growing cold, and ever and anon one or the other burst forth with some salient printed fact. "'I'd like to see Metzner's face when he opened the safe at the store this morning,' Jim gloated. "'He hit the high places right away for Bajanov's house,' Matt explained. "'Go on and read.' "'Was to have sailed last night at ten on the Sajoda for the South Seas. Steamship delayed by extra freight.' "'That's why we caught him in bed,' Matt interrupted. "'It was just luck, like picking a fifty-to-one winner.' "'Sajoda sailed at six this morning.' He didn't catch her, Matt said. I saw his alarm clock was set at five. That had given plenty of time. Only I come along and put the kibosh on his time. Go on. Adolf Metzner in despair. The famous Haythorn pearl necklace. Magnificently assorted pearls, valued by experts at from fifty to seventy thousand dollars. Jim broke off to say solemnly, Those oyster eggs worth all that money. He licked his lips and added, they was beauties and no mistake big brazilian gem he read on eighty thousand dollars many valuable gems of the first water several thousand small diamonds well worth forty thousand what you don't know about jewels is worth knowing matt smiled good-humouredly theory of the sleuths jim read thieves must have known cleverly kept watch on bujanov's actions must have learned his plan and trailed him to his house with the fruits of his robbery. Clever, Matt broke out. That's the way reputations is made. In the newspapers. How'd we know he was robbing his partner? Anyway, we got the goods, Jim grinned. Let's look at him again. He assured himself that the door was locked and bolted, while Matt brought out the bundle in the bandana and opened it on the table. "'Ain't they beauties, though?' Jim exclaimed at the sight of the pearls, and for a time he had eyes only for them. "'According to the experts, worth from fifty to seventy thousand dollars.' "'And women like them things,' Matt commented. "'And they'll do everything to get em. Sell themselves, commit murder, anything.' "'Just like you and me.' "'Not on your life,' Matt retorted. "'I'll commit murder for em, but not for their own sakes, but for the sake of what they'll get me.' That's the difference. Women want jewels for themselves, and I want the jewels for the women and such things they'll get me. Lucky that men and women don't want the same things, Jim remarked. That's what makes commerce, Matt agreed. People wantin' different things. 
in the middle of the afternoon jim went out to buy food while he was gone matt cleared the table of the jewels wrapping them up as before and putting them under the table then he lighted the kerosene stove and started to boil water for the coffee a few minutes later jim returned most surprising he remarked streets and stores and people just like they always was nothing changed and me walking along through it all a millionaire nobody looked at me and guessed it matt grunted unsympathetically he had little comprehension of the lighter whims and fancies of his partner's imagination did you get a porterhouse he demanded sure and an inch thick it's a peach look at it he unwrapped the steak and held it up for the other's inspection then he made the coffee and set the table while matt fried the steak don't put on too much of them red peppers jim warned i ain't used to your mexican cookin'. you always season too hot matt grunted a laugh and went on with his cooking jim poured out the coffee but first into the nicked china cup he emptied a powder he had carried in his vest pocket wrapped in a rice paper he had turned his back for a moment on his partner but he did not dare to glance around at him matt placed a newspaper on the table and on the newspaper set the hot frying-pan he cut the steak in half and served jim and himself eat her while she's hot he counseled and with knife and fork set the example she's a dandy was jim's judgment after his first mouthful but i tell you one thing straight i'm never going to visit you on that arizona ranch so you needn't ask me what's the matter now matt asked the mexican cookin' on your ranch would be too much for me if i've got blue blazes a-comin in the next life i'm not going to torment my insides in this one he smiled expelled his breath forcibly to cool his burning mouth drank some coffee and went on eating the steak what do you think about the next life anyway matt he asked a little later while secretly he wondered why the other had not yet touched his coffee ain't no next life matt answered pausing from the steak to take his first sip of coffee nor heaven nor hell nor nothing you get all that's coming right here in this life and afterward jim queried out of his morbid curiosity for he knew that he looked upon a man that was soon to die and afterward he repeated did you ever see a man two weeks dead the other asked jim shook his head well i have he was like this beefsteak you and me is eatin it was once steer cavortin over the landscape but now it's just meat that's all just meat and that's what you and me and all people come to meat matt gulped down the whole cup of coffee and refilled the cup are you scared to die he asked jim shook his head what's the use i don't die anyway i pass on and live again to stealin and lyin and snivelin through another life and go on that way forever and ever matt sneered maybe i'll improve jim suggested hopefully maybe stealin won't be necessary in the life to come he ceased abruptly and stared straight before him a frightened expression on his face what's the matter matt demanded nothing i was just wondering jim returned to himself with an effort about this dyin that was all but he could not shake off the fright that had startled him it was as if an unseen thing of gloom had passed him by casting upon him the intangible shadow of its presence he was aware of a feeling of foreboding something ominous was about to happen calamity hovered in the air he gazed fixedly across the table at the other man he could not understand was it that he had blundered and poisoned himself no matt had the nicked cup and he had certainly put the poison in the nicked cup 
It was all his own imagination, was his next thought. It had played him tricks before. Fool! Of course it was. Of course something was about to happen, but it was about to happen to Matt. Had not Matt drunk the whole cup of coffee? Jim brightened up and finished his steak, sopping bread in the gravy when the meat was gone. "'When I was a kid,' he began, but broke off abruptly. Again the unseen thing of gloom had fluttered, and his being was vibrant with premonition of impending misfortune. He felt a disruptive influence at work in the flesh of him, and in all his muscles there was a seeming that they were about to begin to twitch. He sat back suddenly, and as suddenly leaned forward with his elbows on the table. A tremor ran dimly through the muscles of his body. It was like the first rustling of leaves before the oncoming of wind. He clenched his teeth. It came again, a spasmodic tensing of his muscles. He knew panic at the revolt within his being. His muscles no longer recognized his mastery over them. Again they spasmodically tensed, despite the will of him, for he had willed that they should not tense. This was revolution within himself. This was anarchy. And the terror of impotence rushed up in him as his flesh gripped and seemed to seize him in a clutch, chills running up and down his back and sweat starting on his brow. He glanced about the room, and all the details of it smote him with a strange sense of familiarity. It was as though he had just returned from a long journey. He looked across the table at his partner. Matt was watching him and smiling. An expression of horror spread over Jim's face. "'Matt!' he screamed. "'You ain't doped me!' Matt smiled and continued to watch him. In the paroxysm that followed, Jim did not become unconscious. His muscles tensed and twitched and knotted, hurling him and crushing him in their savage grip. And in the midst of it all it came to him that Matt was acting queerly. He was travelling the same road. The smile had gone from his face, and there was on it an intense expression as if he were listening to some inner tale of himself and trying to divine the message. Matt got up and walked across the room and back again, then sat down. "'You did this, Jim,' he said quietly. "'But I didn't think you'd try to fix me,' Jim answered reproachfully. "'Oh, I fixed you all right,' Matt said, with teeth close together and shivering body. "'What did you give me?' Strychnine? Same as I gave you, Matt volunteered. It's some mess, ain't it? You're lying, Matt, Jim pleaded. You ain't doped me, have you? I sure did, Jim, and I didn't overdose you neither. I cooked it in as neat as please in your half of the porterhouse. Hold on. Where are you going? Jim had made a dash for the door and was throwing back the bolts. Matt sprang in between and shoved him away. Drugstore, Jim panted. Drugstore. No, you don't. You'll stay right here. There ain't going to be any running out and making a poison play on the street, not with all them jewels reposing under the pillow. Savvy? Even if you don't die, you'd be in the hands of the police, with a lot of explanations coming. Emetics is the stuff for poison. I'm just as bad hit as you, and I'm going to take a emetic. That's all they'd give you at a drugstore anyway. He thrust Jim back into the middle of the floor and shot the bolts into place. As he went across the floor to the food shelf, he passed one hand over his brow and flung off the beaded sweat. It spattered audibly on the floor. Jim watched agonizedly as Matt got the mustard can and a cup and ran for the sink. He stirred a cupful of mustard and water and drank it down. Jim had followed him and was reaching with trembling hands for the empty cup. 
Again Matt shoved him away. As he mixed a second cupful, he demanded, "'Do you think one cup'll do for me? You can wait till I'm done.' Jim started to totter toward the door, but Matt checked him. "'If you monkey with that door, I'll twist your neck. Savvy. You can take yours when I'm done, and if it saves you, I'll twist your neck anyway. You ain't got no chance, nohow. I told you many times what you'd get if you did me dirt.' "'But you did me dirt, too.' jim articulated with an effort matt was drinking the second cupful and did not answer the sweat had got into jim's eyes and he could scarcely see his way to the table where he got a cup for himself but matt was mixing a third cupful and as before thrust him away i told you to wait till i was done matt growled get out of my way and jim supported his twitching body by holding on to the sink the while he yearned toward the yellowish concoction that stood for life it was by sheer will that he stood and clung to the sink his flesh strove to double him up and bring him to the floor matt drank the third cupful and with difficulty managed to get to a chair and sit down his first paroxysm was passing the spasms that afflicted him were dying away this good effect he ascribed to the mustard and water he was safe at any rate he wiped the sweat from his face and in the interval of calm found room for curiosity he looked at his partner a spasm had shaken the mustard-can out of Jim's hands, and the contents were spilled upon the floor. He stooped to scoop some of the mustard into the cup, and the succeeding spasm doubled him up on the floor. Matt smiled. "'Stay with it,' he encouraged. "'It's the stuff, all right. It's fixed me up.' Jim heard him and turned toward him with a stricken face, twisted with suffering and pleading. Spasm now followed spasm till he was in convulsions, rolling on the floor and yellowing his face and hair in the mustard. Matt laughed hoarsely at the sight, but the laugh broke midway. A tremor had run through his body. A new paroxysm was beginning. He arose and staggered across to the sink, where with probing forefinger he vainly strove to assist the action of the emetic. In the end he clung to the sink as Jim had clung, filled with the horror of going down to the floor. The other's paroxysm had passed, and he sat up, weak and fainting, too weak to rise, his forehead dripping, his lips flecked with a foam made yellow by the mustard in which he had rolled. He rubbed his eyes with his knuckles, and groans that were like whines came from his throat. "'What are you sniffling about?' Matt demanded out of his agony. "'All you gotta do is die, and when you die you're dead.' "'I ain't, ain't sniffling. It's the mustard sting in my eyes jim panted with desperate slowness it was his last successful attempt at speech thereafter he babbled incoherently pawing the air with shaking arms till a fresh convulsion stretched him on the floor matt struggled back to the chair and doubled up on it with his arms clasped about his knees he fought with his disintegrating flesh he came out of the convulsion cool and weak he looked to see how it went with the other and saw him lying motionless. He tried to soliloquize, to be facetious, to have his last grim laugh at life, but his lips made only incoherent sounds. The thought came to him that the emetic had failed, and that nothing remained but the drug store. He looked toward the door and threw himself to his feet. There he saved himself from falling by clutching the chair another paroxysm had begun and in the midst of the paroxysm with his body and all the parts of it flying apart and writhing and twisting back again into knots he clung to the chair and shoved it before him across the floor the last shreds of his will were leaving him when he gained the door he turned the key and shot back one bolt 
He fumbled for the second bolt, but failed. Then he leaned his weight against the door and slid down gently to the floor. End of Just Meat by Jack London Read by Don W. Jenkins